Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. Don Giovanni. What do you want to hear? Don Giovanni. John Giovanni. Don Giovanni again. Okay. Hello and welcome to Born of Wonder. I'm Katie Marquette, and on this show we explore anything and everything that inspires wonder and awe in the world. Starting today's episode there with a uh, song request from Jojo, uh, Don Giovanni, the overture uh, to Mozart's opera. Um, (laughs) I just thought it was so funny. I was so glad I caught that request um, from her. Um, just so you know, we are much more likely to get a request for wheels on the bus. So, you know, it's not like we have a super, super highbrow toddler culture here. Um, we are, we're about the high and the low. We've got wheels on the bus. We've got Bob Dylan. We've got Don Giovanni. So, um, yeah, these kids are so much fun. They're so, so fun. Uh, Joe is in this really like imaginative stage. She's, you know, singing goodnight to her animals and reading them books and putting clothes on them and wants to, of course, do everything we do. And Lucy is getting more and more you know interested in grabbing things and doing things and she wants to do everything her sister does and um yeah it's wonderful and that all that being said i've also many times uh just in the past few days really wanted to take a mental health day you know how you could do that at the office i did that a few times when i was you know out in the workforce i would say i need a mental health day and I would stay home and read a book or go for a walk or something and not to talk talk to anybody for a day. But parents don't usually get that option, especially when you have little kids. So for all those reasons, for the joys and the difficulties, it is so helpful and important to find people to share in this parenting journey uh, with. And uh, Gina Didaglo is uh, someone that I've really come to value as somebody to bounce ideas around um, when it comes to parenting and faith and friendship and life and all sorts of things. Um, I think we have very similar worldviews on many things. Um, some different worldviews too, of course, come from very different backgrounds, but um, we ha- we do have a lot in common. And uh, we, we, we love to talk about parenting stuff, um, especially about things that... Uh, you know, that that there's sort of controversy over or that uh, there's a lot of guilt around or that, you know, we ourselves have made difficult decisions because, um, yeah, there's a lot of shame in parenting um, and a lot of guilt and a lot of worry. And uh, and I hope that this episode helps you to let go of some of those feelings, um, because I think what I really want everybody to feel like is that you should do what is right for your family, which may not look like other people's, and that's perfectly all right. So that's what this episode is going to be about. We talk on some uh, talk about some you know controversial things. We talk about sleep training. We talk about birth experiences. We talk about um, passing the faith on to our kids, um, and especially the unique perspective we have as converts, and um, maybe how we emphasize things a little differently because of that. Uh, yeah. So I, I know when I tune into an, a, an interview episode of 
have a podcast and the host talks for like 15 minutes before the interview, I'm like, okay, please stop. Like just start the interview. That's why I'm listening to it. So I'm going to stop. <laughs> There's plenty here uh, for you to listen to. So uh, I hope you enjoy uh, the conversation. And uh, Gina has a great recommendation at the end of the podcast. And then I'm going to play you out with some some more some more opera. I'm going to play Puccini, O Mio Babino, which is a very famous piece. And I have to admit that I thought in my head, I thought it was O Mio Bambino, which I thought would be perfect because it would mean Oh My Baby, but O Mio Babino is Oh My Papa. So not quite as appropriate as I thought. Um, you'll also hear some Baby Lucy laughter uh, that I mixed in there with the Puccini, so <laughs> so that both kids are represented. Um, so I hope you enjoy, um, and, and uh, thanks again to Gina for joining me. It was so much fun to talk with her. As always, find me online, bornofwonder.com. Contact me anytime, marketkady at gmail.com, or go to the contact me page. Find me on Substack, link in the show notes. Very active over there, writing away. Um, and I'd love to, to, to connect with you there as well. All right, without further ado, let's uh, get going here with this conversation with Gina Dodaglo. I am so excited uh, that Gina Dodaglo is joining me on the podcast again. You may remember her from our Theology of Harry Potter episode, which was back in season four, episode six, episode 48. I'm starting to think the way I label episodes is confusing, but it's episode 48 if you scroll back. Um, And that's a very um, popular episode. Um, A lot of people love Harry Potter. We had a lot of fun talking about it. I feel like there's so much more we could have talked about with it, um, maybe another time. But today we're going to do a sort of equally broad strokes conversation, but on a very different topic of creating an authentic family culture in sort of an inauthentic world. Um, But uh, so thank you, Gina, so much for um, being willing to hop in on this uh, extremely, yeah, extremely broad topic to just talk about these things with me. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And yeah, this is something that we have talked about between us a lot uh, over the, I don't know, years maybe that we've been um, in touch. Um, And I think we have some similar perspectives but coming from quite different backgrounds and um situations and so on so yeah i'm looking forward to discussing it so uh do you just want to introduce listeners uh, like to your family for those who haven't followed you so like you know how many kids you have where you live just uh yeah what's your family situation sure so um i am british uh, i was uh, born in England, and I am English, but I grew up in Scotland, which is why I have a strange accent that nobody can make sense of. Um, and I live in France with my husband, who is French Beninese, so he grew up in Benin in West Africa, um, which uh, is kind of, I guess, Nigeria is the nearest uh, country that is an, a reference point for people. Um, and we have three kids. So our oldest daughter, our oldest child is five, a girl. Uh, and then we have two boys who are three and just coming up for four months old. Um, and our, so our first daughter was born in Ireland and our two boys were born here in France. 
And I think everybody knows um, who's a listener to the podcast, but uh, you know, I'm I'm married. I live on the East Coast in the United States, and I have two little girls, two and a half and six months. So uh, Gina and I have been chatting a lot recently uh, over our WhatsApp texts um, since we have two babies very similar in age at the moment. So everything from sleep to nursing to everything else, it's always great to sort of talk to other parents at a similar stage because you forget certain things and you want some solidarity and advice. Um, so that's been really it's helpful nice for, for me. me to have someone who's like two months ahead of me so I can remember what's coming up. <laughs> so I can remind you, be like, Keep yeah, like that does happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's true. Um, so before you became a parent, um, did you, I know I certainly did, I had sort of rather idealized visions of motherhood. Um, but like, did you have some ideas of what motherhood would be like, what you wanted your family culture to be like, um, sort of what what visions did you did you have for your family life? Well, I mean, certainly I always knew very strongly that I wanted to be a mom. I mean, that was very uh, much my kind of driving desire, I guess. Um, but I am an only child and uh, my mom... Well, so I I grew up with, just with my mom. My mom was a single parent, and um, my dad was present in my life. I mean, he's still present in my life, but he lived in another country, so I didn't see a lot of him. So in a way, I didn't have a kind of traditional, I guess you can say, frame of reference for what family life would look like. And I definitely felt that I wanted something that was closer to what I perceived to be. A sort of traditional family unit um i wanted to be married and i wanted to have you know, several kids um not that that's not a criticism of my upbringing um, or my mom or my childhood but i very much wanted siblings and i was kind of envious of people who had that kind of family unit um so i'm not sure that i had any very specific ideas but i knew that i wanted not just to have a family, but for family to be the kind of focal point of my life, I guess. Um, I didn't want it to be something that fit around the edges of a career. I wanted it to be the focal point. Well, um, I had a very different upbringing, but I relate a lot to sort of what you were looking for because I, my family life, I guess, was different uh, in that my both my parents worked a lot. Um, I mean, were like... 50 plus hour work week type people, um, you know, my mom would get home at like midnight, which is why I never had a bedtime ever in my life. I don't remember ever having one. Uh, because if I wanted to see my mom, that was, you know, not gonna happen. So um, I grew up with, uh, like, I, try, I lose count, nine au pairs over the years from different countries. Um, so, you know, which had a lot of benefits in a lot of ways. I'm still close to many of them. Um, but it was hard for me and my sister um, with just the way our family life was structured. We missed our parents a lot. And um, I also wanted uh, family life to be very central. You know, I, I care about other things. I care about my, you know, work that I, doing work that I care about and, you know, passions and hobbies and things like that. But I very much wanted our family life and our life with our children to be sort of what our marriage was about and what life was about. Um, so, uh so yeah, I relate to that desire. Although I didn't always feel that way. That was kind of came with my conversion conversion to Catholicism, okay. I think. Um, 
not that I didn't want to be a mom, but it was not at all a central identity marker. I was sort of like, yeah, someday maybe we'll have kids, you know. And Chris and I met our first year of college. So, I mean, we've been together a long time, but we were always like, yeah, someday we will. But um, it was really uh, sort of the discovery of a faith life that I think made us simultaneously excited about having a faith life together and also having a family life together. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think actually that when I kind of started to be drawn to Catholicism, the kind of celebration of family life was definitely one of the things that made it appeal to me and feel like it had something to offer me that the world didn't because I could see around me that sort of a very family-driven life was increasingly present um and yeah I saw lots of examples of Catholic families for whom family was very much the number one priority still and that kind of drew me into the theology around family and theology of the body and all that good stuff that um but I think it's what pulls a lot of people actually into Catholicism I think that was definitely a big component for me was I, I people I had met uh, who were Catholic, like their family was very important to them. They were unashamed to say that sort of the pursuit of family life was something very important to them. Whereas I think it's not always the case. This isn't true of everybody, but people uh, seem a little like ashamed to say that their kids are, you know, sort of their number one priority. Like maybe they're the, your number one priority, but along with your like career hustle or something like that. Um, I definitely yeah, got that vibe. Yeah, I know what you mean. It seems almost um, kind of regressive to say that, you know, my kids are the most important. Of course, you take it for granted that everybody's kids are the most important thing to them. Um, but the kind of being very forward about that being your priority and other things being secondary to that is kind of a slightly controversial these days it is it is and i mean i still have to like catch my i mean i i'm not at all ashamed of the fact that you know uh you know being a mom and my family life is the number one thing for me right now at this stage in life but i catch myself sometimes wanting to also add like an asterisk or something to be like yeah but i also like do these other things you know so i'm also valid in these other cultural things too (laughs) um But so how how has that gone for you? Do you feel like that vision of sort of that priority of family life, the more traditional structure, like uh, has it has it worked out the way that you um, envisioned? Um... I feel that I I have to acknowledge that I've been very lucky that um, I met somebody who I married relatively young. I mean, unlike you, we we got married kind of. Um, quickly after we met it wasn't like we had a long relationship before starting family life but you know I never really imagined that I would be someone who would be having getting married and having kids in my mid-20s but that is how things turned out and I'm delighted that it turned out that way um I'm lucky also that I'm able to be kind of primarily a stay-at-home mom which is what I want to to do and obviously not everybody's in that position that that's possible um and also that 
we have not had any issues having children. Um, so I feel like I have to qualify my feelings of content about how things have worked out by saying that I know a lot of it is kind of good fortune. <laughs> um, and it's not just about choice because I'm sure there are lots of people who would like to have that. It's not so straightforward. But no, I mean, it, it's really a dream come true for me. And I find myself, you know, daily really thinking I'm so lucky and I'm so happy to have this life, even when it's really hard. And, you know, at the moment it's the, the summer vacation. So all of the kids are home at the moment and there's like a lot of whining and complaining about being bored and me feeling like, can I not just have five minutes to read my book in peace or whatever? But even in those kind of really chaotic, frustrating moments, I'm still extremely grateful for it. Yeah, yeah. I it's yeah, it's interesting. I would I would like to go back and think about what I imagined like my life at thirty one would be like, like from when I was like in my early twenties, because I really don't know. I've had different goals, but um I am, I'm, I'm equally thrilled with my, you know, how things have worked out. And like you, um, hold on, the dog is snoring. Hey, Bruce, can you stop? Thank you. Um, it's not the kids, it's the dog. So, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, of course I have those frustrations, um, where I'm just like so eager to have some alone time or something like that, but I'm, I'm very grateful. And we, we did have, um, you know, we didn't have kids right away initially on purpose and then not on purpose. We were hoping for kids and it took a lot longer than we thought. So I am extra grateful on those levels. Um, I also got to sort of see the other side of things because I did do sort of the workforce thing for a little while. And I also saw my mom do that. And I don't think there's any right or wrong about it. It's just that I don't have any delusions about the grass being greener like I just know that it's all difficult and that you just kind of pick your <laughs> you pick your challenges and I've picked these ones and I'm happy with the challenges I've picked basically yeah absolutely I think what's interesting about being this kind of age I think we're more or less the same age I'm 30 is that I see my friends are at radically different stages of their lives. You know, some people are really all in on a career um, that they've been on since we graduated undergraduate university. So they've been at it for like, you know, almost a decade now. I have friends who are still doing academic study. I have friends who are still kind of really testing the waters and figuring out what they want to do. I was definitely among the first to get married and have kids. Um, but I really see that everybody has their challenges and everybody, you know, the, I mean, there are, of course, uh, blessings and, uh, and trials in every, every possible permutation. Um, but I feel that when I kind of consider the alternatives, I'm happy with the path that I'm on yeah I agree um but what so one of the things that um I guess I expected it in theory but it's a lot different living it out is just sort of navigating 
the parental expectations uh, that we have of ourselves and then that other people place on us and that the abstract entities of the internet place on us. And um, I think this second go round, I feel a lot more confident with my choices. I, I'm enjoying uh, Lucy's baby babyhood a lot more than I did with my first um, because first of all, I sort of, I know a bit more, but I'm also a little more confident in making decisions that work for us that are maybe different than other people's. Um, but this is something that we talk about a lot. Um, so just, I have questions about this, but just what do you want to just share some initial thoughts? I mean, I, I know you've, you've struggled with this and thought about this a lot as well. Yeah. I mean, what you say about, um, enjoying Lucy's babyhood more really resonates, um, confusingly, I also have a child called Lucy. She's, but she was my first. Right. <laughs> um, great name. So great name. When, so when my Lucy was a baby, you know, I was delighted to be a mom, but I was very um, overwhelmed in a kind of non-specific way. But I just felt like, okay, I know this is what I always wanted, but here it is, and actually, you don't just kind of get a chip in your brain with all the required knowledge when you have a baby um and then of course we turn to the internet and friends and family uh for advice and guidance i mean i'm i'm definitely fortunate in that both my mother and my mother-in-law are very kind of respectful of our choices they don't give us unsolicited advice really at all so I haven't had to contend with that. I know that's something that a lot of people do struggle with. But yeah, social media definitely had a big impact. And, you know, I will say that there, you know, I learned a lot of genuinely helpful things from social media as well. Kind of practical tips around um, dealing with yeah, different behaviors, different challenges, things things that come up when you have a baby. But I used to feel a lot of guilt when I would see things that I wasn't doing or when I felt that what I was doing was being called out. Uh, and now, the third time around, I don't feel that anymore. I, I feel that, as you say, I've kind of learned what works for our family and that the best thing that I can do as a mother is to find a way to keep the peace and keep kind of tranquility and equilibrium in our home. And that's going to be, you know, that what works for us is not what works for other people. Um, I mean, one thing that we have discussed a lot is in respect to sleep and how we handle uh, baby sleep, baby and toddler sleep. Um, and it seems to me that you know, about 25% of Instagram is circulating posts saying it's completely natural for your child to wake up 47 times in a night. And, you know, it's just a phase. It's only going to be for the next, you know, eight years. So <gasps> oh, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> and I really, you know, when, when my Lucy was a baby, I was adamant. I would never sleep train. You know, it was, um, and I was kind of very judgmental of anybody who would. And I thought, 
why on earth would you choose to, you know, go with a method that allows your baby to cry? You'd have to be some kind of really cold, horrible, cruel person to do that. And then after six months or so of, you know, chronic sleep deprivation and how that affects every part of your life, your relationship, your relationship with your child, uh, your relationship with your spouse, your ability to do anything much, um, and your mental health. Then I kind of, and, and in fact, what happened was a, fr a friend of mine who I respected uh, as a mother, somebody who I, you know, felt was, was a mother that I would like to emulate and who had um, a child a few years older than than Lucy was then, she mentioned to me that she had sleep trained her first child and then her second child and that it had been, you know, the best thing for their family life. And I thought, huh, okay, well, she's not a horrible monster. So I guess maybe it's not such a terrible thing. Um, and yeah, that, so that's what we did. We did that with, with our first child and with our second child. And we'll see with, <laughs> with this one. So far, he's been a decent sleeper, but, um, you know, we know that there's a kind of route that we can take if things go south uh, regarding his sleep. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's still not something that I feel excited about in that I don't feel excited about hearing my children cry. Um, but I also know how important it is for them as well as for us to be well rested to get proper sleep and for me to be well rested and get proper sleep i'm a much nicer and kinder and gentler and safer mother when i am adequately rested so i am at peace with <laughs> with that choice yeah we've talked a lot about sleep because sleep is like everything i mean if it can change my entire day, you know, whether or not I've slept, you know, <laughs> I think maybe some people function better on less sleep. Um, I don't know, yeah. like I, you know, I just I need my sleep, you know, I can do it a few times. But that just sort of chronic every night is a, you know, no sleep night, like I am not a good person to be around after that. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I have heard people say things like I function fine on little sleep. So if that's the case, then yeah, Absolutely. Like if, and, and you know, I would never tell somebody to sleep train if they didn't feel the if need they of it. If they don't want to, then it's don't. Yeah. You do because you feel that it's going to help. If that's not the case, then don't do it. But, you know, I am absolutely the same as you. I need sleep to, <laughs> to be at sort of the basic level of, you know, human functionality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, the, and I do think especially around sleep, it's, you know, whoever's listening, however you sleep and your baby sleeps is great. Whatever you want to do, I have no sort of like moral <laughs> qualm about however the baby's sleeping as long as it's safe, you know, but it's like um, if you're on social media, there's a lot of shame around sleep one way or the other, um, and especially around sleep training, like you said, and that really messed me up as a, as a new mom um, because I was co-sleeping and getting no sleep and like hating it so much. This was not like some beautiful bonding thing with my baby. Like if somebody was is co-sleeping and that's their experience, that's great. But like this was like 
you know, she wasn't sleeping well, I wasn't sleeping well, we were just miserable. Um, and I do think a big part this time is that like, I put Lucy in her own bed um, at three months and in her own room, and she's sleeping really well. <laughs> like I think and that's partially yeah. luck, you know, we did do a few things, we put some parameters on things and um, did some like fussed out things that we've talked about. But she's also just a naturally good sleeper. So I also see that there's just you know, individual children are going to need different things and it's okay to just sort of roll with the punches and go with what's working. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, somebody said to me recently, um, you're a different parent for each child. And I mean, beyond that, you're a different parent for each child in each phase of that child's life. But, you know, as as you say, some, I mean, my first child was not a good sleeper. I mean, also, I didn't know anything about how to maybe encourage her to have good sleep habits. So it's hard to know how much was her and how much was me. Um, and the two boys have both been easier sleepers. Um, so there is definitely an element of kind of luck. And, you know, I, from time to time, you'll meet someone who says their baby sleeps through the night from you know four weeks old or whatever and then it's not necessary yet in which case very good for you um but we have to adapt to babies because they do not adapt to us <laughs> very true and i think that just sort of uh, around the topic of sleep it's like you don't have i think that this was just a realization i came to sort of what you were saying is that it was it was not selfish of me to prioritize my own health um like that that was actually it was not being a good mom to be just like a martyr to my kids all the time um and that's something that I continually remind myself of and you know to put boundaries on just mental health and other things like that um you know for both my husband and I just that it's important that we are like thriving people <laughs> outside yeah. of just our service roles <laughs> in what we provide like you know as we are serving these like queens of our house <laughs> what do you need now um you know that, that that we do have some moments outside of those roles to sort of be fulfilled people that um can be good examples and happy parents for our children yeah and you can enjoy being a mother or a father much more when you're well rested. Like I have this really strong memory of when my first was, I don't know, a couple of months old and thinking, I'm not going to have any more kids. I'm just going to get through the next 18 years because <laughs> this is hell. Yes. <laughs> like, I just wasn't happy. And, yeah. and, you know, I think that with, after we decided to sleep train her, then when I had my second and third kids, I didn't have so much anxiety around sleep when they were sleeping badly at the beginning because I kind of knew, okay, there there is a There's way a solution. to deal with yeah. it. Mm -hmm. um, and so when, you know, we do have bad nights from time to time, it doesn't feel as all-consuming and kind of suddenly worrying, oh my goodness, am I going to be dealing with this for years on end? And I think that's just generally like the like motherhood, the second or third or whatever time around is 
easier in that way in that like you know things end like you know that you do get through phases and that things are just a phase but when it's your first I mean I'm dealing with this now just with a two and a half year old that's my oldest so I haven't seen past that you know so I don't know what is normal what is not normal what is a phase what is a problem um so and that's just that's just life I mean that's just we just all have to get through that but I think with subsequent children we can relax a little bit um and I think this is maybe where the wisdom of friends and um you know in-laws and parents and grandparents and things like that can come into play because these are people who've been through it right and that can um can help us to see what's on the other side hopefully definitely yeah and I mean for me that's what has made the third time round definitely the easiest transition is because I'm just so much more aware now that all the challenges are going to be brief you know we'll move on to another challenge but each one is not going to be forever um and also it means that you appreciate each stage more because you know that it's fleeting um I think with a baby for the first time even though you know that babies babies don't keep it can feel really like you're stuck in that that phase um whereas with subsequent babies you're much more alert to the fact that well actually no you're not before you know it you're gonna have a toddler and then and then a kid Hmm. yeah yeah the cliche of it goes so fast like it really does and I think it just gets faster and faster um yeah there's certain things with Lucy like I'm yeah. able to enjoy like I said like she's in her own room at night but I almost solely contact nap with her I'll roll away but I like contact nap with her a lot and I don't worry about that I just enjoy it because it works right now it just like it just works and I know that when I need to put boundaries on that or whatever that I can and that it's it's fine you know I don't I remember when I would contact nap with my first it was like oh my gosh am I going to be lying here with a five-year-old like I like you know what you know I mean (laughs) who am I kidding there's no way she's napping when she's five she barely naps when she's two but um yeah like that there was like you know there was just all this fear of like oh if I do this now I'm gonna have to do it this way forever and I think that there's a lot of freedom in just saying you know what this is working right now let's just leave it and we'll just make changes when and if we need to like that's a lot you know definitely freer but um yeah so another issue we've talked about sleep I also see I think another just sort of the, the like flashing shame lights come up a lot around birth actually um and how yeah. people talk about that I mean the 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 you know crunchy birth narratives are out there a lot and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that but there aren't a lot of alternative positive birth stories I think and I so appreciated that you shared on your Substack about your third c-section your c-section birth story that was um I think I wish that more moms who had a c-section would share their birth story like it just you just don't read them as often I think it was really important that you did yeah and I mean I had a friend who just had her first c-section after having um had an unmedicated natural birth the first time um and there was so much basic stuff that she just didn't know because you don't know because nobody talks about it. And doctors tend to not be great at preparing you for it either because for them, it's just like a medical procedure and you're just a patient. So you kind of, you just go through it and there's not, I mean, I'm sure that varies doctor to doctor, but 
you know, I think often women feel very unprepared, um, whether it's an emergency situation or whether it's a scheduled C-section. And I know for me, when I had my first baby by C-section, which was an emergency C-section, it was very traumatic, but it was mainly traumatic because I just wasn't prepared for it at all. I was planning to have an unmedicated vaginal delivery. I just didn't really consider that it might not work out like that. I somehow just thought that, well, that's what I want. So that's how I'm going to have my baby. Um, I thought that C-sections were for kind of life or death situations only. Um, And no one in my birth prep classes said, hey, actually, C-sections are, you know, are quite common. And this is what happens if you have a C-section. And even when it was happening, you know, I remember really vividly when they told me that I would have to have a C-section, my husband asked them, okay, can we have a few minutes to talk this through? And they said, no, we need to go to the the OR now. And it was, you know, nobody even remotely kind of said, okay, now this is what's going to happen. And so it was just such an overwhelming experience. Um, And I think the thing is that a lot of, because a lot of women experience it like that, a lot of the talk around it is very negative and people talk a lot about trauma and, um, you know, cascade of interventions and all these things. Um, And don't get me wrong. I mean, it can absolutely be traumatic. I mean, it was traumatic for me when, when I had my first, um, but by the time I had my third, which was my first scheduled C-section, it was a very positive experience. And it's just very rare to hear anybody talk about a C-section in positive terms. And for me, it, you know, a big part of the reason that it was a positive experience was because I knew what to expect. Um, but I think it's really important to sort of change how we talk about not just C-section births, but also people who choose to have medicated births so people can make those choices and feel like they're positive choices for them instead of feeling like it's a kind of concession to the ideal and the ideal is an unmedicated natural birth. And, you know, my friends who have had unmedicated vaginal deliveries are quick to say that it's, you know, not, um, no picnic, right? A book of roses. <laughs> it can it can be traumatic as well, um, and that you know a lot of the sort of the way it's it's talked about uh, online gives a very false impression of the reality of it. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't have I haven't had um, a C section, but I did go into my first birth thinking I would go, you know, all natural. I mean, you know, I think that everybody thinks that the first time. <laughs> They're just like, <laughs> of course, like, I'm going to be like, have my like meditation playlist, like my hypno birthing, and I'm just going to like, it's going to be beautiful. It's gonna be amazing. Um, and uh, I was induced because I had gestational diabetes. Um, and I had it both times. But um, in any case, I was very naive about what an induction entailed. And of course, you know, again, I just I you didn't don't read too much about alternatives. It's sort of like a natural birth or everybody just shuts up about what happens instead. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So an induction um, is is different. Um, it was 
terrible <laughs> in my first in the first first time around um, because I was so naive and I didn't know what was going on and nobody told me. And, uh, you know, I ended up getting an epidural, um, which I thank God for that epidural because I think it progressed everything. I wish I had gotten it much sooner, but I had a lot of pride issues, I think, about getting it, which is so silly to say, but it was true. And um, yeah, so in any case, like I had to deal with like that my birth didn't go the way I thought. um, And I just never, you know, it, it was, it didn't go the way I thought. But the second time I was induced and I got an epidural and it was actually a very positive birth experience because I knew that I was going to get induced. I knew what that entailed and I was ready and willing to get an epidural when I needed it. And um, I felt very empowered by the whole thing. Um, So I think it's less about what actually happens during the birth, whether it's natural, a C-section, medicated, induced, whatever, and more that you, the mother feels that she's made choices that are right for her and her baby. And that that's not the narrative I hear. It's like this type of birth is good, not not like I think the conversation needs to be less about what kind of birth it is and more like, is it the type of birth that is best for you and your child? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think um, the key really to a traumatic birth versus a positive birth experience is whether you feel that you were empowered to make choices, that you understood what your options were, um, and that there was, you know, a level of mutual trust between you and your medical provider that you are able to make choices for yourself. And I think it's difficult because I see also a lot of demonization of of doctors, um, I mean, in general, but especially in connection to birth. And I think some of that's justified because I do, you know, I have experienced myself a kind of supreme lack of communication um, and lack of bedside manner and, you know, just interactions that that made things worse than they needed to be. But at the same time, I think it can be dangerous. I mean, you know, I am in a Facebook group for for people who've had C-sections and the extent to which I see people telling advising other moms to ignore medical advice about you know how whether or not it's safe to have another c-section I mean people are so cavalier about saying like oh you know I had eight c-sections and and I'm fine so you know I'm sure your doctor just isn't really pro-life and that's why they said that you know you shouldn't have a fourth or fifth c-section um I mean for sure there are lots of a lot of doctors um, are not, let's say, don't don't necessarily have their their patients' best interests at the forefront of their minds. But also, you know, most of them do <laughs> just want you to be healthy and like not die in childbirth. <laughs> um, and I think it, it's not really helpful to sort of to fan the flames of this distrust of of medical advice. Yes, I think that the, um, yeah, like, of course, there are valid concerns about, you know, you want a doctor who's advocating for you. And unfortunately, uh, I guess it's similar in France as well, um, maybe we very different medical systems, but you do certainly have to advocate for yourself a lot in these situations. Um, and uh, yes, that could be important to acknowledge, but also 
it's good to take medical advice. Uh, I'm, you know, like it's, uh, you know, it's not such a bad thing to, to say, well, my doctor advised this, so I'm going to do it. Um, I think that that can be a perfectly valid uh, reaction to, to some, to some um, concerns from your medical provider. Yeah, and I think in some kind of birth circles, there's almost this narrative that it's kind of weak or lazy to follow your doctor's advice rather than coming up with some alternative plan, which again, if you don't trust your medical provider, by all means, you know, find another one or find somebody who can help you come up with a safe alternative plan. Um, but you know, don't take your advice from Facebook or Instagram. <laughs> take it from people who know what they're doing and have experience in the field. Well, I could talk about just we should we could just have a whole birth topic episode, but um, I do want to be conscious of my my husband with the kids right now. So I wanted to make sure that we get to uh, two other um, mini topics, which is that sort of as we're talking about developing a family culture, you know, how we're doing things differently or the same um, from our families of origins. Both of us are Catholic converts, and we're raising our kids Catholic. And that is different for both of us. Neither of us was raised that way. So what have you what has worked for you or what what sort of are your goals in raising your kids catholic um and i know you have a little bit of a different situation in that your husband is a non-practicing catholic so um but is supportive of uh raising the kids in the faith yeah so, so yeah my husband was kind of born and, and raised a catholic um not necessarily kind of super devout but you know he's family definitely identifies as Catholic um, and he would still say he believes in God and he would still identify as Catholic but he's not really practicing um, but you know we've so we've baptized our children um, and we you know have at least kind of in a default way agreed that we will raise our kids Catholic um, but definitely this is something that's very much a kind of work in progress for me or something that I'm still figuring out a lot. I mean, I think that this is really difficult because I think we're the same in this regard that, we, you know, neither of us are converts from having been raised like Protestant or something. Like we're converts from having been raised without religion. So we don't have any framework really for raising children in any kind of faith tradition um and i do you know i still feel like i'm finding my own feet with my faith and what my personal faith practice looks like so i don't feel kind of super equipped to be passing things on to my kids or kind of in a very at least not in a very specific way um so I try to kind of take the heat off um, and remind myself that my kids are still very young and it's only really recently that they've started to sort of engage with faith in a more kind of meaningful way that they've started to ask questions and um, kind of notice things about what we say at church or um, 
things you know that come up in bible stories or you know things we say at prayer time um before that it felt very much like i was just moving them through the motions um and now it's more like becoming personal for them um well especially you know, for my for my five-year-old and actually i think seeing that happen has taken a lot of the pressure off because i realized that a lot of it actually isn't about me you know she will have her own uh relationship with god or not you know <laughs> and i think that's the thing like when you're a convert especially from atheism or agnosticism you're very aware that belief in god is not like a default position for everyone um and my dad who is a fairly kind of militant atheist his line about my conversion has always been that he would rather that i converted to a religion as a result of having really thought through these questions then that I just kind of like breezed along and didn't really think about it one way or the other. And I guess I kind of feel like that about my kids. Like I will invite them into my faith and I will kind of, you know, I will I'll take them to mass. I will prepare them for their first Holy Communions and all that, you know, I will engage with them about the Catholic faith. But I'm very aware that I can't make them believe it, <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't force them to share my faith and nor do I want to. Um, my, my biggest goal really is to encourage them to think critically about these questions, you know, the fundamental core questions about human existence um, and to arrive at conclusions that are meaningful and compelling to them. And of course, I hope that they will, you know, arrive at a, a similar place to me, um, because I do think Catholicism is is true and beautiful um, and so rich. Um, and I, I would love them to have what I see as such a huge gift. But also, I know that you know plenty of people who are raised Catholic don't. Be, in fact, my my dad was raised Catholic, um, and he certainly doesn't feel that way about the way that he was raised. So, I guess that's that's where I am with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I relate to a lot of that. Um, it is sim- it is interesting because you don't hear as many convert conversations from atheism or agnosticism. I think a lot of people come from some faith tradition and it is hard um, to be starting at square one. Um, You know, my family went to church on Christmas occasionally, uh, more for just the Christmas carols than anything else. Um, So, but nothing was discussed. You know, I never had any concept of this being a part of our life in any way. but I was always interested. I remember asking about God and getting sort of vague answers. Um, but uh, yeah, for my kids, I want them, I want their faith to be their own. And I think at this age, I mean, my kids are younger than yours. And at this age, I just try to survive mass with both of them. <laughs> and uh, we go to a very beautiful cathedral that has a lot of stained glass and candles and 
Um, you know, Jojo likes to walk around and greet all the saints that she knows by name. And she says, look at all the rainbows, you know, the beautiful stained glass. Lucy is looking at the stained glass. And um, we try to go to the mass with the good music. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I, I'm just trying to give them aesthetic, positive associations at this age that I think can be very meaningful and powerful. And, you know, even like something like the smell of you know, smell of the church, the smell of incense, something like that can be very evocative as you get older and hopefully harken back to, you know, good positive memories that then as they get older, we can add to sort of those uh, aesthetic and um, emotional experiences, uh, sort of the weight of the faith of, um, you know, discussions about, you know, why we think this is true. And I want them to be able to, I don't want them to live in a state of like fear of the world because my whole family isn't religious, so I'm not going to, like, not let them encounter my family. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, all these, like, heathens that we're surrounded by, like, don't talk to them. So I, like, that that attitude of just, like, we're, like, keeping them safe by, like, hiding them away. Like, I just don't – I'm never going to do that. So I want them to – I want them to feel just equipped to encounter the many challenges of the world and that our faith is strong enough to ask those questions and to – uh, you know, hold the burden of doubt and things like that. And that that's all good and okay. Like, I'd much rather have that struggle yeah, than yeah. like you said, like just a whatever, <laughs> you know, like a just I was raised with it. So I guess I'll keep doing it. You know, that doesn't really that's not a real yeah, thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I really Yeah, it's important for me to, um, to let them know that it's okay, if something doesn't make sense to them, or if something's confusing to them or even you know like my daughter will say i don't want to go to church it's boring and i'll say yeah sometimes i'm bored at church too you know that's that's okay but like i still go because i love god and because that's something that the church asks us to do um but you don't have to think it's fun <laughs> um and then when bigger questions come, like, you know, my daughter was asking me about this concept that, um, you know, Jesus is the son of God, but also St. Joseph is his father. So, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, I was kind of trying to explain it to her a bit, but obviously it's like very confusing for her because she has a very kind of simple understanding of what familial relationships are at the moment. So even, you know, even using the foster father title um doesn't kind of work for her yet and just saying yeah it, it is a bit confusing isn't it um it's okay if you don't understand it um i really don't want to ever make them feel that there's something wrong with them if they are having difficulty with something or even if they have to say to me you know what i i don't think i do believe this particular thing or this thing generally um, letting them know that, you know, a big part of faith is doubt <laughs> um, and is, you know, it's a lifelong process of grappling with these questions. Yeah, I think so. And um, I think we won't get to it in this episode. We'll have to do another one about sort of life in France, but um, I wanted to end on, I think this is leading into it well, is just sort of like, living authentically because that's sort of what we've been talking about this whole time is just like 
parenting authentically, living our faith authentically, hoping for an authentic faith life for our kids. Um, but what is that? What when we throw out a word like authentic, like what does that mean to you? I think if the, at the core of it, it, yeah, it's really kind of honesty about our own humanity with our kids. Um, being willing to let them know that we make mistakes, that we change our minds about things, um, that, yeah, you know, that as parents, we're just people too. Um, and of course, we want them to feel that they can rely on us and that we're, you know, solid, dependable figures in their lives, but also that we're people who, you know, don't always get things right um when it comes to faith but also when it comes to parenting and just day-to-day life um i want them to see us modeling that we do things that work for us because that's what works for us and not because it's what people expect of us or because we want to impress other people or whatever that we do things because it's what we believe is the right thing to do and yeah you know encouraging them to explore um their own uh, you know as they, as they start to make sense of the world of living in the world which they are just kind of on the cusp of as uh, as they kind of get out of toddlerhood and into childhood the older two to help them feel that it's that you can ask those questions that you can ask difficult questions um that it can be overwhelming but that they're ultimately rooted in our family um and hopefully in their faith as well as they especially as they get older i think uh the authenticity question is so important to both of us probably because we're converts um because we chose this um so it's like it has to feel it ha- it has to come from a, a real true place and I want that for my kids um but just in general I think living an authentic family life is like just doing what's right for us as a family and thinking of a relationship with our kids in like the long term not just like their little kid selves but I hope that my kids want to like have a relationship with me when they're adults <laughs> and <laughs> you know I hope that they call me every now and then and that we have a you know a friendship as well as a you know just a mother-daughter relationship and that requires honesty and vulnerability and you know I think that as appropriate for their age you know to be willing to show those sides of yourselves uh, yourself and um to your kids can preserve that long-term relationship or at least that's what I'm banking on so um and hoping yeah. for. <laughs> um, I think like when like both of us I think come from fairly kind of liberal secular backgrounds and we carry some of those beliefs you know a lot of those beliefs probably into our our lives now as Catholics and you know I often feel like I'm just pissing people off everywhere because you know for the liberal secular world I'm too conservative on you know lots of issues um I don't fit into their boxes of what they want me to believe about various different things but then also I think coming from that background I'm much more critical of a lot of the narratives within the church um 
a lot of the things that I see as important issues in in of matters of faith um, are things that I think make a lot of Catholics kind of uncomfortable. And I think that's good because it means that I have to constantly examine what I truly believe and what feels really true and right to me. Um, I can't just be complacent and, you know, believe whatever either of those groups is believing. Um, And so, yeah, I really hope that my kids will take that forward, that they will be willing to piss off their peers um, by believing things and having views about things that aren't necessarily kind of popular or comfortable. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I feel like I'm like too, con- too conservative for one group and too liberal for another group. So it's like just never, yeah. <laughs> I'm never, ne- nope. There's never like the whole group is happy, you know? It's like there's somebody who's like, mm, that's not quite right. So I also have a bit of a contrarian streak, so I can't say that I dislike that. But um, <laughs> uh, I always think, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm like, oh, good. Like somebody's like doesn't approve. So that must mean that something's right about this, which, you know. That's maybe my own issue, but <laughs> um, so, so just to wrap up, I always ask people, you know, if they have a, a song, a book, or just really anything at all that they would like to recommend to the listeners. Yeah, well, I think I've already made this recommendation to you, but I've just recently discovered Barbara Pym, um, the author. Um, my mom left me with one of her books after I had my baby most recently um and they're just so delightful and funny and kind of quite astute um but it's like extremely easy reading without feeling trashy at all it's kind of like Jane Austen light in the 60s (laughs) Um, that sounds amazing (laughs) and it's like you don't have to use your brain much to read it but also it leaves you with stuff to think about I think um and I I very rarely read two books by the same author one after the other but I finished one of her books and immediately started reading another one um so I highly recommend anyone who is looking for something kind of light and easy but not trashy to check out Barbara Pym that's great. Yeah. Um, I've heard her recommended before. Um, but now that you've also recommended her, I'm definitely going to going to look into into that sixties Jane Austen vibe sounds like you just really can't go wrong with that. So <laughs> um well thank you gina so much for coming on we have so much more we could talk about we'll have to do um another episode sometime but it's always such a delight to talk to you so thank you so much for taking that precious post bedtime time and uh (laughs) and uh uh joining us on the podcast thank you for having me
And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing.